0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Reality 2.0. I am Catherine Druckman, and joining me today are regular guests, Kyle Rankin and Petros Katupis. Doc is actually not joining us because he's off having fun somewhere, which he is entitled to do now and then. So we miss him, but uh, we're a little jealous that he's having some fun. But before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone to visit our website at reality2cast.com, that is the number two. There you can sign up for our newsletter or you can check out our previous posts and episodes for supplementary information and links. And also I wanted to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters that support us at a higher level. Um, We did promise to give you a shout out in our episode, so we wanted to let Steve N. know that we really appreciate his support. And we hope he and all of you are enjoying our episodes. Thanks. Anyway, so today, we, you know, we we've come together to talk about kind of our roots. Um, we're, we we want to talk about open source contribution and specifically how and why companies can and should contribute back to the open source projects that they're using. So, for a little background, you know, all three of us, you know, came from Linux Journal. We've 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 spent a lot of time um, and very working on various open source projects using various open source software you know writing about it talking about it you know doing all of these things and and we also sort of come we're we're our own we have a lot of influence on each other I think or at least they have a lot of influence on me I don't know if they can speak for themselves but but so the, this, this is this group is where a, a lot of my opinions have formed this is sort of my little my, has been my sounding board for a long time. So I thought we might just kind of talk out where we're all coming from on this to the Reality 2.0 audience. Because I recently was on a panel at DrupalCon, which was really fun, uh, talking about this very thing. And I thought, well, okay. So I had that conversation with that group. So let's bring that back over here to, to my friends, Kyle and Petrus. So, yeah. So Kyle, so you work for a company that makes, open source hardware. You make privacy and security oriented hardware, but at the same time, you use open, so- open source software and contribute to various projects. I wondered if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, uh, so uh, we, Purism as a company takes in general uh, an upstream first policy, which isn't necessarily unique to us, but what that generally means is uh, when you're, when you're working on software, especially when you're dealing with like free or open source software as a company, you what will happen is you have a problem you need to solve. You look around and you will often find some sort of free or open source project that uh, solves that problem 95% of the way or 90% of the way or whatever it is. And there is – so then you typically identify something that works. You take it and maybe you, you uh, make minor changes to it to benefit yourself now uh some companies tend to keep those changes to themselves internally although i think i would i i would imagine you might be obligated i guess if they ever shipped software that included those changes they would need to provide the source code but let's say they're just using it internally for some internal project that never sees the light of day externally there's often a temptation to just keep that to themselves keep those little tweaks uh even if they might you know very, it's very rare that a company's needs are unique to themselves uh, it might be that the way that they implement those needs uh, are very specific in certain ways but in general in general I would argue if you were to make those changes and then ship them back upstream and work with upstream uh, to implement to to merge those changes that you've made to benefit you into that everyone including yourself benefits from that um so, we generally do that ourselves. So for example, if we, uh, PureOS is our operating system that's based off of Debian and it's what runs on all of our hardware. And there's often unique, th- there's changes sometimes that we need to make uh, either patches or other things to improve the software. And when we do, one way to do it would be that we take a an, an piece of upstream Debian, an upstream Debian package, make those changes Package it, and then it's a pure OS only kind of thing. Uh, that a lot of times companies do that, uh, but our choice has been as much as possible to not do that. And instead, what we do is we will we while we may also while we may um, take the code and package package our patched version and and uh, have it within pure OS because we want the immediate benefit of those changes. We also will open up a merge request upstream. To merge those changes upstream, and the idea is, you know, ideally, if we can do it quickly, to we would merge it immediately. You know, we would try to work with upstream to merge it first, and then just have it trickle back down to us. Um, so, if we can do that, even even better. But even if we can't, uh, for example, a good case of this is. Um, pureboot which is uh, part of uh, pureboot which is our uh, sort of high security boot firmware that we load and all the other things that we do to secure the boot process not just the boot firmware but it's based part of it is based off of heads which is this upstream project that is specifically just for tamper evident boot firmware that doesn't necessarily include some of the other things that pureboot does but we have often made sort of changes that benefit uh, primarily us, but also would benefit the community that uses heads in general. And so what we've done is, you know, our firmware releases uh, are based on our fork of heads. But in addition, whenever we make changes, as much as possible, we try to merge those changes upstream and benefit the overall, you know, heads ecosystem, I guess, and the heads project. So we want the delta between that and our code to be minimal. Another great example is with the Librem 5, we have uh, worked to, you know, it's very common, especially under ARM hardware, to create a very custom set of kernel modules that just have your proprietary changes for your hardware, and it gets locked in place at some kernel version that might be brand new when you create the hardware, but then two years from then you still have the same, you're locked into this kernel version that's only you are maintaining and is always out of date. If you look at non-Raspberry Pi hardware platforms that use ARM, you'll see this all over the place where they'll have a, a distribution that's locked in time and more importantly, a kernel that's locked in time with very custom proprietary modules or just custom changes. Our approach has been to, at first we had to have a, you know fork off of the mainline kernel to to support our hardware but as but throughout this process of developing uh hardware support in the kernel for the Librem 5 phone we've merged we've we've worked as hard as much as we can to merge all of those changes up into the mainline kernel and now if you were to look at the the very latest mainline Linux kernel you would see that Librem 5 hardware support in the mainline kernel and what that gives us in addition to the fact that we—it's not simply us maintaining that code, even though we are—but also the overall kernel community can help maintain the code. It also gives a lot of assurance to users of that kernel, that uh, and the hardware, that the hardware is not necessarily going to be abandoned in the future, uh, like many ARM ARM-based uh, kernels are for specific pieces of hardware that, you know. The fact that it's in the mainline kernel means that there is ongoing long-term maintenance that will be done even if for some reason purism as a company disappears that because it's in the mainline kernel hardware that gets supported there will has a can be maintained long term
2: actually awesome. that's uh similar to the experience that um that i have had uh first yes when you're working with you know proprietary or embedded hardware The biggest annoyance, like you mentioned, is, you know, at the time when the hardware is made, it's locked into a specific uh, kernel. And then that kernel lives with that hardware indefinitely until you decide, or the manufacturer decides to end of life that hardware. And everything is maintained at that version, drivers and whatnot, everything is gonna be developed around that version. And that has been a nightmare in my world of development around a lot of these, embedded devices. But going back to the upstream first comment, yes, in a lot of the companies that I've worked with, that's sort of been our philosophy upstream first. But there's always the uh, concern that if upstream does not take it, you are going to be stuck with maintaining it separately. And it's going to, it's going to essentially introduce some sort of fragmentation from whatever lives upstream. But You know, on on the other side of it, if you're not working with the latest and greatest of the code, depending on the project that you're on, a lot of companies also decide to work with um, LTS releases of that particular uh, package or set of packages. So you're already running in some sort of fragmented form because, you know, the latest and greatest may have certain bugs, bug fixes or features that you decide to cherry pick anyway. So. There are many situations in, in my world of development where we are forced to have some sort of Franken package, you know, Frankenstein package that uh, looks different from the upstream. But yes, the uh, philosophy from what I've seen in a lot of the uh, recent companies that I've been with is upstream first, which I think is great, um, but it doesn't always work out that way.
1: Okay. Well, and the reason that it doesn't work out, which you're pointing out, is sometimes it's you can't necessarily get all of the code merged in. But then, as you say, when you can't, every every line of code that you can't necessarily get merged upstream becomes a maintenance burden in your forked version. Then every it time definitely upstream... does. Yes, yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, and which is which underscores the reason why. You know a company should at least attempt as much as possible to do upstream first because if you don't then what you end up with is like you like we've been talking about these old kernel versions that are locked in place this goes for other software too if you as a company decide i'm going to use this software but i'm going to modify it but then i'm not going to contribute my changes upstream what you're saying is that fork i will maintain indefinitely and every time upstream releases a new version then all of my developers have to stop and do this reconciliation where they see well did the new Um, new upgrade upgraded version upstream break my patches or what happened you know every patch that you can get merged upstream is is you get tested uh, as part of any new release if if a new release breaks that merged code then presumably the new release won't happen until that's reconciled but if your your code isn't merged then you you're the one that gets to discover it after the fact after that new release has been made so you know there's that just that additional maintenance cost alone you know every like like we said every line of code that you can't get merged upstream is something you have to maintain and sometimes that's a maintenance burden you have to take on but if you can as much as possible get things merged upstream it not only benefits the whole ecosystem even if you only did it for for selfish reasons having it merged upstream means there's there's fewer lines of code that you have to reconcile later on when there's an upgrade or otherwise doom yourself to always being to running a, a single version of software that never gets an update.
0: So something that I've experienced a little bit, and I know a lot of people in the Drupal community, for example, since that's that's my main point of reference here, um, is once you once you pull in a dependency, like in the case with Drupal, it would be a, a community contributed module or something, any kind of dependency that somebody else has written, right, some piece of software somewhere, um, you sometimes tend to have to you take on ownership of that yourself. Is that something that you face, where you, by blessing, by including it in your project, you've blessed this other thing that may not have had um, quite enough support previously, and now it's it becomes on you. Do you do you feel is that an experience that you've had, it's sort of like maybe the the opposite of of the getting something into the
1: upstream. I mean, in our our case, what it comes down to is we would see that, for example, in software that that we might have installed by default in pure OS. So mm-hmm. if you get a, you know, for example, if you get a Leapman 5 phone, we, we have, uh, you know, a lot of opinions about which software gets installed by default because our support team then, you know, if, if you buy a piece of hardware in it, whatever software comes with it, you would expect if you have support, that support, you know, is going to be responsible for helping you with that. Uh, and I mean, our support team goes above and beyond, and you know ends up supporting people installing all kinds of things and other operating systems and everything else and other distributions. But at the bare minimum, you know if we if we're choosing to install a piece of software by default, then then we're acknowledging that that we are going to help people use it, you know mm-hmm.
0: so does do, does that create challenges for you like that are maybe I don't know i I wouldn't say that it's the downside of Working in open source software, but but at some point, at some level, you own that now, right? In other words, other people's code becomes your problem in the same way that your code can become the community's problem.
1: Well, I su- I suppose am I oversimplifying? It? Well, it's true that it can potentially become your problem, but if we contrast that to if it, the same thing happens with the proprietary software world, where you may have two two proprietary software companies that partner on something, in, or. One company is including a proprietary app that the other companies develop. That sort of thing. The difference is, uh, if in that circumstance, if there's a problem with the app that someone got from Upstream, let's say that's pri- proprietary, you as the vendor have no have way fewer means to fix it. You can maybe put pressure on the company that made that application you're including uh, to fix something, but you have no means yourself to fix it. You know, whereas in our case, if for some reason we had some sort of upstream package that we included by default and it had a problem, and for some reason we also couldn't get upstream to uh, patch it quickly enough, we still have the an option that proprietary software doesn't have, which is to fix it ourselves, or hire someone to fix it, or, or all of those things, or apply a community patch that maybe someone has made that hasn't been merged yet, that sort of thing. Package it and ship it, which is, again, an option that, you know, the... Re- much of the software world wouldn't have even though they have they face the same problem because they're all bundling software
0: so what do you think about um, non code contributions to open source projects for example every article every book that both of y'all have written I would argue is a contribution to Linux it's a contribution to you know other things that you've written about. What are some other other ways to contribute to these projects that maybe aren't as obvious as writing a book or writing some code?
1: I mean, documentation
2: and forums overall, are just.
0: Oh yeah, I was gonna say documentation. Yeah, that's what I
2: was gonna say. It's such an important thing, right? Tutorials, guides, how to's.
0: Yeah, so to me, when you're evaluating a piece of software, the first place I go is documentation. If it's not well-documented, it's really hard to justify using it or suggesting that other people use it.
2: Well, and, and of also course, uh, word of mouth, you know, spread, or advertisement, you know, spreading the word. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, yeah.
1: Well, and also high quality bugs. You don't necessarily have to, you don't have to be a developer or be able to write any code at all to be able to file a high quality bug for something that, for a problem that you're having with the software. And that's something, you know, developers only have a limited number, amount of time to test, test software that they're working on. That's a good one. And, And they only test certain, there's limited use cases too. And so uh, learn, anybody can learn how to file a quality bug. And by learning how to do do that, you're more likely, I mean, the developers, I know all the developers I've worked with really appreciate well-formed bugs, you know, good bug reports that really identify the problem. And it's by doing that as a contributor, you don't have to know how to write software. You just have to be a user of the software uh and if you do approach it you know with kindness i suppose and and right. patience you know but but yeah so that's a that's a huge area because there's just no way that any individual can test all of the different ways software can be used and also just, you know, you need a diversity of opinions on how software is being used, you know, and sure. that's one of the reasons that diversity in software development is so important because if you all, if only one type of person's writing the software, but the world full of people is using it, you're, you know, you're not going to necessarily write software that serves everybody.
0: Right. You know, and if there's one guarantee I, in software, it's that somebody's using your software in a way that you didn't expect.
2: Yeah. And the, um, on the you know, talking about writing quality you know uh, bug reports one thing that i have noticed is every developer every project has their own idea of what to include in that bug filing so i also think it's the developer's responsibility to uh, provide a summary or a list of what they are looking for and you don't really find that in a lot of open source projects there. You know, if you're filing a bug, what information do you need from me? And a lot of times that can make or break how a developer you know, approaches a uh, a bug that has been filed or gets to a resolution, you know, uh, quick enough. So in terms of writing quality bug uh, you know, uh, quality bug uh, reports, Sometimes you need a little bit of direction and, you know, a, a good way to do that is for the developer to also chime in on top of that.
1: Well, and, and also, I know at least with GitLab, which is what we use for managing our source, source code and for, for filing issues, uh, you can create templates. And so we have templates for various categories. That you can load that basically automatically fills in, and uh, you know other bug bug filing systems create the ability for you to have workflows and that sort of thing mm-hmm. to file a bug. You know they all have different ways to do it, but it but yeah, I mean I I would second that that the best thing that you can do is on the developer side to encourage that sort of thing is make it easy to file high quality bugs. If you make it difficult, then you're less likely to get them. But if you have templates already in place that are just fill in, you know that you're just filling in the bl- blanks if you're the user. And with all of the things that are needed and in filing that, then you're going, you're you have a way higher likelihood of getting high quality bugs. If you reduce that
2: friction. Exactly.
0: Writing good uh, bug reports and, and code reviews and issue comments and all of these things are, are sort of, I guess, soft skills that people forget about or they don't forget about, but it people underestimate the difficulty of doing those things. Well, in my opinion, because it's something that, I mean, I'm constantly working on improving. Like I, I feel, I've, I always feel like I need to spend a lot more time on, um, writing good issues and comments than I, than I would have thought, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a skill. And it, it's something that's, a, that's really important to get right. I think to keep the project moving smoothly. Um, So I wonder if if we could talk a little bit about some other benefits that a company might see from being an active contributor. And one that comes to mind that I've spoken with, I think both of you in the past about is attracting and retaining talent. Because, you know, my, my feeling is that um, being an active contributor attracts a certain type of employee. And I think that the type of employee that is attracted by that Commitment to contribution is the type of employee that you you probably should want. Um, it's certainly it's certainly something that attracts me, um, and you know it attracts a lot of really really interesting people with the you know the the killer get the get killer GitHub resume that you're looking for, right? Those are the type of people who want who want to see a company that that's participating. And I wondered if if y'all had any thoughts about that.
1: Well, it certainly helps. Uh, to retain talented people who, who feel strongly about the work that they're doing and the quality of the work they're doing and, and the ecosystem, you know, the free software ecosystem that they're developing in, if they feel like they're, they're developing not just in this isolated silo that never sees the light of day, but that their contributions are out there, especially if they were already making contributions to the software, maybe perhaps you even hired this person because of their expertise in a particular piece of software allowing them to continue to work upstream you know and not stifling them within you know your private code base or whatever i mean that that's a much stronger motivator for them to to love what they do since they are if someone's doing this in particular with 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 the the FOSS world there's a lot of people that that do things as a hobby because they love doing that kind of work and if and they they're with the goal of maybe I can also make a living doing this thing that I love, and you're attracting that kind of talent that isn't just going to isn't just going to do a good job writing software, but you might even find people that are that lo- actually love writing the software that you're having them write. Um, if you have people that are maintaining it, that are helping to maintain it upstream, because again, you're attracting people that maybe were already doing it for fun on the side
0: what would you say to people who are concerned and I've heard this before and you know I think you know people understand that that in order to retain those good people you just you need you know you compete on lifestyle and and other things and and there it's a are complicated factors but um what would you say to people who are a little bit concerned that by um paying people to work on open source, you're basically writing their resume for them so that other people can steal them away. And I, I mean, it may not be a huge concern, but I have heard it raised. Certainly.
1: I mean, I don't necessarily think that, that there's a company trying to do things to stop, uh, their employees from being poached other than creating a really nice work environment for their employees. Uh, I don't think Probably anything do other than that success. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're like, well, how can we keep these people? They hate being here, but maybe we'll just throw <laughs> some more. We'll throw some more money their way, so that the, I mean, some companies. That's basically the repro- approach. Is we know it's a horrible environment here, but we'll just pay you more than other people, so you won't leave. You know, or whatever. Or we'll give you some Fair more enough. gummy bears, or whatever. Right? Yeah, I, I think. I, don't, I would I don't totally think work for gummy
0: bears. No, don't tell anybody <laughs> that though. <laughs> that sounds great right now. Mm, gummy bears. Sorry, I'm. <laughs> Um, apologies I, never, I, uh, I go off on these tangents when you say things like gummy bear
2: yeah I never heard of that concern believe it or not um, really
0: huh, yeah okay.
2: it's, I mean on um, the contrary
1: on the contrary having p- core developers of a particular project working with you on your contributions when you're using the code uh, ends up granting you know Because that person has expertise, it also grants your company that expertise. And in some cases, especially when you're talking about enterprise things, you might have people that are working with you as a company because you have Mm
2: -hmm. these,
1: you know, these core developers working on. I imagine in the Drupal world, if you have someone that has core commit status, right? Because you know that if you have some sort of weird problem, for example, if you're a company that's writing, that has hardware that you're selling and you have a kernel developer on your team, then, you know, some other company that's working with you will have some sort of assurance that, well, if there's some sort of problem, at least they have people that can look into it, you know?
0: Yeah, but I I imagine, I mean, I, I imagine this could be tough for a smaller a smaller company, right? You know, how do you, as much as, I mean, you know, you're gonna attract people who are a good fit, right? And the, if the fit is the, a good fit, then you probably don't have much to worry about. However, there's, you know, I, I do understand that it could be hard to compete with some of the larger companies who, you know, have reached some sort of critical mass in terms of the number of really great mentors that they that they could offer you or the you know, the number of, of, you know, various opportunities that it might, you know, just be too difficult for smaller companies to compete with. So, you know, I I do, you know, in, in everyone's defense, I, I can understand that a little bit. Um, i wondered if we could also talk about reasons why a company would want to contribute for let's say marketing purposes or other strategic reasons for example i i think kyle you may have said this to me recently but basically that you know a a customer or a partner wants to work with companies who can get code in to an upstream Whereas you know maybe you know a smaller company can't. Uh, again, how do you? Well, it's you know, not necessarily
1: to- size of company, but there is. I mean, I, I imagine there is a benefit. I mean, just like we just said with with companies that have you might might have someone that has core commit access to Drupal working on something custom. You know, there's if you have if you if you foster an upstream first environment internally. And you have steady, it went, you know, the very first commit that you get merged may take some time if you're going at it brand new, but if you have a team of people that have done this routinely, then you're not talking about this this giant timeline to get necessarily get things merged, especially if you have people that ha- have built enough trust in the community that they're able, that they, you know, have relationships with either core contributors if they're not a core contributor themselves. So you can you know you're more likely to get your changes merged in if you're a good community player and you know and you cooperate with the community and maybe again have some of those people within the community on your staff because they already you know everyone already knows everybody because a lot of times there's there's sometimes there's reluctance when you're merging code from a complete stranger you you're going to evaluate it a little bit more Uh, i mean if you look at for example how the linux kernel is being developed you know, it's not like Linus is is talking to every individual who's submitting a patch to the kernel directly. There's like this hierarchy of trust, essentially, that things go through. And by the time it gets to his eyes, you know, he's he's looking at submissions from people that he inherently trusts and then is reviewing that, you know, so it goes through a, a number of quality filters ahead of time.
0: So that, you know, you raised an interesting point that I I don't want to go off in too much of a tangent, but there is this sense that in a lot of open source projects getting code committed or getting problem solved, whatever it may be, is, um, a lot of it boils down to who, you know, in many cases, which I think can be frustrating for, for people who are either new to a project or, you know, outsiders in some way. And I wondered if, if, you know, I've heard that there are some projects that are, um, trying a slightly different approach to be less gatekeepery i guess if you if you want to say that um i wondered if you know anything about that if you had any thoughts if there was some solution
1: i mean there's there's always sort of the atomic option which is the pending threat of forking if you have a if you have an actual toxic developer community that's too gatekeepery and mm-hmm. won't allow legitimate patches. I mean, that's happened a number of times uh, within, you know, the history of major FOSS projects, where you have something where the the core developer or developers, uh, usually it's a pr- relatively small number of this ends up happening, where they won't, they have have some fundamental disagreement with some new direct, either a new direction or they just don't want to maintain new patches or whatever it is, and the project ends up ultimately getting forked as that for that reason there's been other times where that's happened and then the new project gets so much new adoption that essentially that new project ends up getting forked back to becoming the the new version of the old project I think if I remember correctly the history I may be wrong about this but egcs uh, which was a compiler uh, ended up going that route where ended it if I'm again this is pretty fuzzy we're digging back like 15 years now or something but mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that it forked because there were new features that weren't getting merged by the gatekeeper original crew mm-hmm. it became the new popular standard and then it became the new version of what it had forked
0: yeah interesting yeah I mean I would I don't think this is a, a huge problem like for example Drupal or you know maybe probably not for the Linux kernel either but I, I you know I am aware that there that it can be a problem for some open source projects without naming any because I frankly can't think of any but and you know I think there's always going to be a little bit of a, a bottleneck just in terms of you know the amount of time humans can devote to these kind of things and and the larger a project grows and the more you know complicated the bureaucracy gets to you know getting stuff in you know it's it's just it's kind of an inevitable problem probably but uh, anyway interesting thing to think about Um, well it's
1: also i mean but that's also a problem in the proprietary world it's just the difference is that it's all within a a single company and you have however many people within have code review and commit access and Mm -hmm. directly and then other people that don't necessarily or it has to go through code review first you know so i mean it's it's just software's generally similar ways it's just in this case it's all out in the open for you for everyone to see
0: so i actually so this is fun um i watched i re-watched a keynote that you gave kyle at um oh gosh i can't even remember what event it was but one of the things you mentioned was um the sort of distance between the original or sort of founding ideals of the open source movement if you want to call it that um and open source today in other words that maybe we've lost our way a little and I wonder how much that impacts um, sponsored contribution like you know the big companies like you know let's say the red hats of the world they you know they they were in at the beginning of open source so to speak and they were you know and, This is, you know, it's nothing, they don't need to be convinced of the value of contributing, right? But I think, you know, some other newer projects maybe do. And I've seen a few examples recently of people, let's say, changing their licensing or, um, I don't know, maybe not not having enough buy-in from the business side um, into the whole idea of, of open source, and, and or at least not in the way that, that we, the three of us, think of it. And I wonder what you think about that. Like, like if you have any thoughts about the op- open source ideology and its impact on these kind of business decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing it just is that more recently, It's been, it's almost, and I mean, I cover a lot of this in a Linux Journal article I wrote about Open Core, where I kind of, it's kind of a rant Mm -hmm. about complaints about Open Core, where a lot of, a lot of startups in particular have approached open source software as a method of getting essentially seed round free developers, Mm. and attracting a talent pool that's developing for free, so that then you can hire them and, and almost have them work for free for, you know, equity. Uh, maybe, uh, until you get your Series A prototype, and then maybe you can start funding them a little bit. And it, But essentially, a lot of people have have only viewed it, and I would kind of blame some of this on open source versus free software mentalities too, because there's if, if you're focused strictly on, can I see the source code, more than you're focused on sort of like the freedom aspects of what all of this, what it means to see the source code, and be able to modify it and release those changes for that, such that others, others can contribute all of that, those aspects of free software. If you're looking at it strictly from a, did someone publish this source code somewhere so that other people can see it, uh, and you're sort of just viewing it like that, uh, then it's more likely that you're going to approach things from a well, how can I monetize this? Maybe I have this over here in the corner with my open core, and then on this other side I have this proprietary software because I have to be able to make money in, in whatever way. Uh, but I, the other thing I keep going back to is imagine if, for example, Apache decided you know, back in the late 90s that it would be really good. Now that we have everyone has switched over from all of the other proprietary web, uh, web server software that they had been using, Now that everyone's on Apache, back when Apache, you know, first started making that migration to being the number one web browser or web server that everyone was using. Imagine if they pivoted and said, okay, well, now what you're using is the the base model, the open model, but now we're going to have Apache Pro and all the things that you actually want to do with Apache, any new features are all going to go in Apache Pro and we're going to monetize this puppy now. You know, I mean, imagine how different the internet would be if Apache tried to monetize it back in say the early aughts.
2: Yeah, that mm-hmm. was uh, the original Netscape model, wasn't it? They had the free trial version and then uh, you paid some sort of price to unlock more to give the full features, bells and whistles. Yeah, I think so. I think you're I right. I totally
0: don't remember. I mean, I'm old Petros, but I'm not that. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. I might be, but I just don't remember. Um, <laughs> so, okay. What would you say to people like you're an engineer, you're working at, you know, fill in the blank big company that has a team of lawyers, you're using an open source project, you're using some sort of, you know, whatever it is. Uh, You want to contribute, you want your company to contribute, but you get a lot of pushback on IP concerns or, you know, sanitizing proprietary information of some sort. How would you suggest? Um, somebody approach that if you were trying to convince the powers that be internally of the merits of contributing
1: i mean in in some cases if you're concerned about that it might be because you're shipping that software in which case with a lot of these licenses you already are liable to share the software the source code anyway so if we're talking about those cases where you already have to share the source code then then going the extra step of working with upstream to merge it, it doesn't seem like it's any any greater liability or any other risk now if you're talking about your you have sort of a dividing line between your your community contributed things and then your proprietary bits then that's I suppose that's different and that's just a case of convincing people like clearly people have been able to do inside Microsoft over the last few years that it's to their benefit to to free up that to to free up all of that proprietary software and make it you know and release the source for that well i mean I know. here's the other here's the other thing here's the other reason i think it should be is, is it's kind of a pay it forward model a little bit which is sometimes hard for a company that's strictly focused on profits to think about but <laughs> as much as people complain about how free like the open source world has so much waste or duplicated code because there's like five calculator applications or whatever it is it does not you know, get even close to the wa- waste of engineering effort that's in the proprietary world. Every single proprietary product is reinventing the wheel of some other proprietary product. And when that startup inevitably folds, that code gets thrown away. Or when that startup inevitably, inevitably gets gets acquired, that code gets thrown away, never to be seen again. And so, you know, those the, those years spent developing that software ultimately get completely thrown away. Uh, I mean, this is why it's its not like there's been major innovations in messaging, for instance, even though there are all of these different proprietary messaging applications out there that all basically do the same thing. Maybe they, they look a little different. Maybe they have slightly different features, but it's essentially the same code. All of those developers all had to reinvent that same exact messaging wheel to release the software, this incredible waste of effort, whereas if they had been more willing, if imagine how how much how much further along and how advanced messaging would be just if we're just picking on messaging if all of those companies that invested all of those years of developer effort to write a proprietary messaging application all worked on adding the improvements to an existing open source messaging platform that just suited their scale and everything else you know i mean it would be in, in, in commoditized that and then competed on something else so yeah i mean i would say among other things, if you just want to inv- to advance software in general, the f- it advances way faster when companies are sharing their innovations upstream into existing code bases instead of siloing it off into their own internal repository to die, either when the company dies or they 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 lose enough engineers th- that knew that code that the new engineers come in and throw it all away and start from scratch or whatever it is. Yeah.
2: Well, from what I've seen, whenever that company gets acquired, what happens is they slowly wait, wait, uh, wait it out to see how many customers they can get that already are using the old code uh, to transition to the acquirer's code, if that makes any sense. So, if the, you know the big company comes in, acquires the small company they try to convince the small company customers to use their application instead. You know, for instance, when contract renewals come up or new products are sold and then eventually as, as the numbers dwindle on the, uh, small companies, uh, uh, customers, then yeah, they decide to eventually kill it off and it's forgotten in time.
1: Yeah. I mean, for instance, uh, there's this, this, op- this, uh, open source software called OpenSnitch that I've been using recently. That there, So there's a, a piece of Mac software called Little Snitch that acts mm-hmm. like a firewall for outgoing connections on your Mac, and it will but, alert you to when things are being... Kyle, kind of snitches
2: get stitches, my friend. Oh, that is true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um,
1: or patches, in this case, because... Oh, segue. So uh, in this case, it looked like that project had died. In fact, at one point, you know, two years ago, I looked at that and said, you know, this might be something interesting to add to the Librem 5 uh, when it comes out. You know, this is, again, a couple years ago. And uh, but then it looked like it stopped having maintenance for various reasons that that just sort of happens with free software sometimes. It also happens with proprietary software, uh, especially if Google's running it. But any case, uh, it sort of seemed like it was abandoned for a little bit. And I thought, oh, well, that's a bummer because there wasn't really anything that was its equivalent that we could switch to. And so we just sort of tabled it for a while. And then I looked at it more recently, and it looks, and it turned out a, a new developer, I believe it was a new developer, at least looking from what I could see from GitHub. It seemed like a new developer took an interest and started working on um, patching and upgrading certain things that needed to, to be patched and upgraded to, to continue the project. And now it has a new life in it, and it's it's and you know it's getting regular updates, and it's back and running. And I actually was evaluating it on my phone uh, this past couple of weeks. And it, this is something that would not happen in the proprietary software world. You know, once something's dead, it gets thrown away. You know, and there's no there's no sense of it being revived later on uh, by someone some other interested party. You know, but but in the in the free and open source software world, this this kind of thing happens. You know, more often than not, if the software was something that that had a user base and that people found useful.
0: So I think another you know to me, uh, what should be a big motivator is just having the seat a seat at the table. If your business I think depends on a particular piece of software in a very significant way, I think that you want. To get, be as involved in that project as you can be, right? Because you want the, at least the ability to to shape certain decisions or or shape the future of the project, or you know, just have some representation um, in some way. But you know, that it, but that's challenging. I think um, it's not you know, it's not always straightforward. So, with that in mind, I wondered if we could talk about for companies who've already they're sold on the idea of uh, you know they want to. Do you, you know, they want to start contributing, they want to contribute more, you know, any of that. What are the, the steps that you would suggest they take to start making that happen, or, or increase contribution?
1: I mean, I guess I would start with just, I, I guess, what, called, what you would call a gap analysis. If you are taking an existing piece of software and using it internally, and then modifying it for your needs, you you have to recognize instantly you're taking on a maintenance burden by maintaining those modifications and so i think i would start with looking at this delta between your internal version of the code and the upstream's version and realize that upstream's not going to stop releasing updates uh just like you're not going to stop uh, patching your own uh, custom changes but by Identifying, the, I would start by identifying the gap, and then trying to find ways that you can submit smaller patches uh, to upstream to get, you know, simpler, simpler forms of your improvements that you've made, because you made those improvements for a reason. Uh, so get, getting those accepted, so at least those things you don't have to maintain, and basically just slowly nibbling away at that gap. And this is essentially what we did when we were looking to main to get a, a Libra Five support in the mainline kernel. So we started with, you know, thousands of lines of code that that were different, that we had to maintain, and when the mainline kernel released a new version, we had to reconcile all of that, and it just it became a point of identifying all of those changes and then just working to nibble away at it until that that delta is smaller and smaller and smaller, and ideally a zero if you can if you can manage that, and if not, then it's just a smaller
2: set of changes that you have to maintain.
0: Do you have any thoughts on that, Petros?
2: No, I. I don't disagree. I think that's that's a great way to make yourself uh, known in in, in the uh, project or the community. Just start out small and eventually just spread yourself out a little bit.
0: That's a, that's a good a good point. You, you say make yourself known. Um, there are other things you can do to make yourself known too. I mean, obviously, you know, if you can commit, if you can get, you know, patches committed here and there, that's one way, but there's also, you know, I'm, I'm sure both of you have worked for companies that sponsor a lot of events or or that kind of thing to like quite literally get out there and make yourself known um i mean they're both perfectly valid it's just a it's a slightly different approach you do you do any of that sort of thing like i don't know if, if it would be relevant to purism, I mean, aside from, I know, you know, I've seen, I've seen a purism booth at various events or at least one event that I can think of. So I know that you'll do that, but do you do anything else? Like in terms of, I don't know, sponsoring code sprints or, or, or other kind of community involvement type of stuff that, you know,
1: you can talk about. Sure. I will. So a couple of things. So one of, I mean, the main thing that we do is simply hire people in the community, to write free software all day long, you know, and pay them a salary. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's the main Cool. Thing, you know, <laughs> that's so that, that's, cool. the, yeah. So that's like step one is just, but, but there's limits to that. You can only, you know, any company can only, there's a limit to how many people a, a company can hire full time to work on stuff. Sure. Right. But there's always, there's always needs that exceed the current team that you have ability to address, but that, and that also exceed just a, the headcount that you can have as a company. Uh, That's reasonable. So sometimes what we do is instead of in cases where we can't necessarily bring someone on full time. And also the other thing is sometimes people aren't necessarily interested in working full time individually. Like they may they may some people enjoy having smaller contracts and just sort of having the freedom of being being their, you know, sort of their own boss and that sort of thing. And so sometimes what we've done is it's almost like a bug bounty program in a way, but we've identified certain things that we want to see done in the community that we don't necessarily, um, we're not necessarily gonna have a full-time employee for. Usually, Sometimes it's like a feature. For example, the most recent example is there's all of the software that's out there that just needs to be made adaptive, but it already exists. And it already runs on, for example, on our phone, but it's not necessarily adaptive. So something that we're experimenting with is for some of these smaller things where we're not necessarily going to be taking on full maintenance of an application or even partial maintenance of an application, but we also know that perhaps the primary developer doesn't necessarily have the cycles to make a particular program adaptive. Or maybe, you know, they they may want to do it, but they don't necessarily have the time to do it or whatever. So we're experimenting with basically just sort of uh, setting out almost like bounties And and hiring contractors just to do small changes to make a particular application. We'll pick an application um, and say, make it adaptive. This is sort of behind part of our, we had this fund your app campaign where we had the, we we reached out to all of our existing customers and others and said, hey, we have all of this, we have all of this software that uh, doesn't, isn't either improvements for the phone software that doesn't fit or whatever. If you'd like us to work on that, if that's important to you, vote for it, but also sort of vote with your dollar. So you know, donate five bucks or whatever and say, yes, I'd like to do that. And so we've accepted all kinds of donations uh, and votes for what people would like mm-hmm. to see and use that to inform what we're doing now, uh, which is, you know, again, h- hiring people to do one-off tasks to fix this or that thing. And that's something that a company of really any size could potentially do within, the, you know within free software. Where maybe you know their current team is busy doing whatever, but they see benefit in a project that they use, but they can't necessarily pool current resources over to it. They could potentially hi- hire someone on a contract just to fix particular bugs and work with upstream to fix them. So the upstream gets the benefit of having someone being paid to do it. The developer has the benefit of being paid to do the work, uh, and that that could also it's also a good way to identify talent later on potentially to bring on board for a, a full time ro- role if it if it comes up
0: something that Kyle you said when we talked which i thought was interesting but maybe you've already covered it but the I, one of the the thing the one of the reasons why people create sort of that maintenance delta for themselves is because they're trying to move a lot faster than the community and i thought that was kind of an interesting thing to acknowledge i don't know i wonder if, if that's a, enough of a talking point
1: Well, I mean, whenever you have a community contributed project and you have people working on something in their spare time, you're going. You you sometimes will be in a situation where a a company's priorities, whatever kind of a member of the community they are, will will never 100% mirror the priorities Mm -hmm. of of developers or their time. You know, like if you're a company, you're paying people full time in many cases to work on something. And the contributors to a project may not necessarily be working full-time on it. It might be something yep. that they're working on on the weekends or that sort of thing, right? And so also, something that's important for the company to see in a piece of software might be different from what the core developer's priorities are for new features, that sort of thing, or whatever, bug fixes. So you know, yeah, I would so having um, by working with upstream directly. So oh, sorry. So by um, having sort of an internal, one of the drivers for having an internal fork sometimes is we need to make a change and we don't know how long it will take to get that incorporated and merged into the next release and changed, but we need it internally faster. And so to me, the approach that's worked for us at least is you take on that maintenance burden if you think that that's uh, likely that it might take a while to get merged upstream, just so that you can package it internally and use it internally, but you always, at the same exact time file a merge request for those patches so you don't lose track of them and you try to reconcile them with future releases uh and because eventually you will get to a point where a lot of that will get merged up upstream uh based on their priorities and their time and then you have one less thing that you have to maintain yourself
0: yeah absolutely yeah i mean i've definitely run into that quite a bit um well, always even, no, there was always some module like, well, if this moved along a little bit more, I would use it. But, and you you balance, you know, do, do I have the time or expertise to bring it to where I, it needs, do I want it to be myself? And then I can tr- contribute back or is it, you know, do I pivot to other things and wait for the community to catch up? And uh, you know, how important is this feature? But anyway, Um yeah. So any, this is, I think this has actually been really great, hopefully useful for people. Um, any final thoughts on why and how of contributing to open source?
2: It's the right Just thing to do, do. Just do
0: it. Just do it. It makes you feel good. I mean, I, you know, I, I always feel really good when as much as I, um I have severe imposter syndrome. So I, you know, I have to, Fetch about everything I write on Drupal.org, for example. Any comment I make, anything you know, I freak out about it for a little. You know, read it like three times. But it makes me feel good at the end of the day. If I, especially if I've if if I've done something well, you know, it makes you feel great. And I think that's important. It's important to acknowledge. You know, we all we all work hard, right? You know, we work hard. So it's it's good to reward yourself with with those little moments. Well, cool. So if you've made it this far. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, as always, we encourage your feedback. You can reach out to us via the website at reality2cast.com. And thanks again.